0: around the world often start off privately owned, perhaps by the original owner investing in their life savings, perhaps by family members who believe in them and or their capacity, perhaps even by angel investors who believe in it as well, but eventually a number of those companies become publicly traded, become what's known on the stock market. Different countries have different stock markets. And this opportunity going from private to public is what's known in that transition as this initial public offering when it's first made public to people like you and I, you and me, that we get to own companies that we've never started. We don't even know how anything about them, but we think that they can be quite prosperous and do quite well. Companies like General Motors, when they went public, they raised $15.8 billion dollars Facebook now called Meta raised 16 billion. Visa 17.4 billion. Alibaba raised 21.8 billion. And the largest initial public offering raised to date in 2019 was Saudi Aramco raised 29.4 billion dollars. It's one thing for individuals, family members and angel investors to give their money to these companies, It's a whole nother for people publicly to be given to that. In order to do that, there's a lot of process involved. There's a lot of investigation and due diligence. Is this company ready to be honestly held accountable for how they're gonna conduct business? Because people and companies are gonna invest entire perhaps life savings. Proposals have to be prepared. Underwriters have to get involved. Securities and Exchange Commission experts are to be talked to and to be advised. Lots of documentation, marketing materials are created, a board of directors is formed to ensure quarterly processes of financial reporting, shares are issued, ownership is extended, and fingers are crossed. And hope or people have invested delivers on what was marketed and promised. But sadly this isn't often the case, not always at least. There have been some overwhelmingly gigantic companies that have been invested in that had to declare bankruptcy. WorldCom, the second largest telecom company in the United States after AT&T, went bankrupt. Washington Mutual, the biggest savings and loan association in the entire United States went bankrupt. Lehman Brothers, the fourth biggest investment bank in the United States at the time, had been in existence for 158 years with 25,000 employees, went bankrupt. Investing in companies can be exciting and scary. Exciting because of the possibility of what you could perhaps earn from that investment, but scary because the reality is you could also lose it all. And everything you hoped you'd get from that investment would return empty. Well, this morning, we learn about such a place of investment. It's not a company that's being invested, not one's financial assets. It's one's very life, one's very belief system. What we see this morning is that the reality of where lives are invested will determine what will come. And to see that, turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. In this passage today, it could be compared to a company that's being offered publicly and others are being asked to invest in it. Some are saying to do so, others are saying not to do so. Some would say Paul is starting his own quote unquote company. But Paul would say he is simply representing a company, if you could use that term by sort of connection and comparison that's been around long before him. Let me have you see it for yourself. If you're just joining us today for the first time, we started several weeks ago going through the book of Galatians. We're now in Galatians chapter 2. This letter that Paul writes to a series, a collection of churches in Galatia, as we see that in in Galatians chapter 1, verse 2. But now, for our purposes today, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Paul writes, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, uh, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is a continuation of what he started back in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 1. Paul is presenting his autobiography about his life since becoming a Christian. And he's really laying out kind of in a repeating fashion with sort of compounding illustration that Paul's not making up Christianity. What he's coming up with is not a creation by men. It's not something he came up with. I mean, you can see this as he continues to work through these sort of different time events. In fact, what he describes is the reality that Paul himself is indeed independent. In fact, if you can go back to verse one of chapter one, verse one, it says, "Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man." And he goes on to speak about his ministry that's from the Lord. In fact, he says, if you'll jump down to me in verse uh, for me in verse eleven of chapter one, he says, I would have you know brothers that the gospel is preached to me is not man's gospel. Verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul in one sense is claiming independence, but he's also demonstrating historic affirmation. This isn't unique to Paul is what he's saying. Others have taught this. James, John, Cephas, who's also known as Peter. Other people have testified of this in Paul's own life. They're confirming that the gospel that Paul is preaching is the same one they were preaching before Paul was preaching it. We're thinking about the text this morning in Galatians chapter 2, both with the leaders of the church personally and the church collectively. Here you could say it's sort of the main point. You could walk away from today's message. The gospel is affirmed, not created by the leaders of the church. The gospel is affirmed, not created, by the leaders of the church. And for the purposes to kind of give us an orientation to the text, the text I just read to you, let me help you understand sort of four sections to it. You go back to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 again. Verses 1 and 2 really teach us that the gospel is explained to the leaders. You notice how he says in verse 1, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. So let me again just put this in a timeline perspective. Paul is a rebel. He He is indeed punishing and persecuting the church. Christ appears to him on Damascus Road. He gets saved. Within those first early years of being saved, he's overwhelmed by the gospel, and he goes to different places, Achaia and Tarsus. In the middle of that time, about three years in, after he's been converted, he shows up to Jerusalem but not for a public audience. He has a private interaction with Peter. Peter affirms that what he's preaching is true. In fact, he also then speaks about that at the end of chapter one that others who are hearing about Paul by old reputation are hearing about Paul by new reputation, that God saves sinners, even those who thought for sure they would never believe in God. There might be some of you like that here today. You might be sitting here as a convinced atheist, or a convinced Muslim, or a convinced Hindu, or a a convinced agnostic. And you might think, there's no way I could ever be a Christian. There's no way I would actually ever believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, let me just let you know right now. You're amidst a long line of people who have said the same thing before. But God is a a miracle-working God. He takes the unlikeliest of people. And through a clear teaching of His Word and the Spirit moving upon the hearts, open their eyes and they see what they otherwise would have never had seen or believed before. And they give their lives to Christ. That's Paul's testimony. And in verses 1 to 3, or excuse me, verses 1 and 2, Paul comes back to Jerusalem. says there in verse 1, After 14 years, meaning since he was first saved, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. She's got some wingmen with him. A peer in ministry, Barnabas, a child in the faith like a young disciple, Titus, he's got these guys with him. And he goes up there because of a revelation set before them, he basically presents them to the gospel, which takes us to the second section of our text. Number two, the gospel is protected from false Christians. This is in verses three through five. The gospel is protected from false Christians. Why do I say that? Well, because Paul says that, verse four. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy. What's happening here in the text is that Paul continually is nagged throughout his ministry by people who said they're Christians or not Christians. People who identified as followers of, of Jesus but really were not. And it goes on repeatedly throughout his ministry. In fact, the book of Colossians, a church that he didn't even go to. He didn't even plant the church. It's presumably planted by some of the earliest followers of the book of Acts from the time when Peter uh, preached in Jerusalem and went back and Epaphroditus is there and they get saved. But even after this new church is formed, other false teachers come in and start teaching people to believe other things other than what the Bible teaches. Well, Paul is addressing that even here in the book of Galatians. In Jerusalem, these false brothers. And Paul sees the significance of the gospel Being protected from them. And it's really kind of around this issue of circumcision. In verse 3, it says here about Titus, who was with me, not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Something we'll speak more about later this morning. But then the third section of this text is not just what happens in verses 1 and 2 or 3 and 5. The third section is the gospel is to be presented to everyone. The gospel is to be presented to everyone. And so you see this in verses 6 through 9. He kind of talks about this influential people. Throughout ministry, you'll have people of prominence, people who are anonymous, people who are well-known and have lots of followers, and people who are unknown to most people. And he also talked about the reality as he speaks about these people who are influential, particularly the apostles, James, Cephas, John, as they're mentioned specifically by name in verse 8. He talks about the different categories of people, Jews and Gentiles. There's some of you here this morning that are ethnically Jewish. You're raised Jewish. That's maybe even perhaps part of still your religious identification. Others of you are not Jewish. You're primarily entirely Gentile. You're in the Bible known as a Greek. You're like, well, I'm not Greek. Well, actually, you are. You're like, that's offensive. Now, just so you know, in the Bible, the Bible is often described as like a Greek world and a Jewish world. And if you were not Jewish, then you were everything else was known as Greek, also Gentile. And you see in the ministry there in verse 8, as Paul describes in verse 9, these, God was sending, indeed, Peter to the Jewish people to do his primary emphasis of ministry while Paul was being sent to the Gentile people. In the fourth section of our text, you can see this morning, is really what comes into verse 10, which is the gospel should be illustrated with good works. The gospel should be illustrated with good works. He says in verse 10, only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The idea is that professing is one thing, practicing is another. The various ways in which our Christianity is to be practiced, but Paul has been given particular direction from the other apostles at this time. I say all this because I want to give you an orientation of the text, Galatians chapter 2 1-10, through 10, but I want us to go back to it now and begin to work out implications from this gospel clarity. And I want to share with you this morning six implications from gospel clarity that Paul is offering. Number one, Ministry calling should be confirmed. Ministry calling should be confirmed. Now I've had the privilege to my own surprise to be a pastor. I say to my own surprise because a lot of you don't know me, but I was not raised in a Christian family. I do not come from a long line of pastors. The fact that I'm a pastor surprises no one more than it does me. I remember being in college and actually praying. Well I had no clue what I wanted to do We went to four different universities and had five different majors because that's how lost I was. I remember praying, God, please do not make me be a pastor. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. I really did. You can see how all that went for me. After realizing through a series of events and people's counsel and opportunity and different desires that were changing in my heart and affirmation from the elders of my church, the pastors that were overseeing me and A number of other factors, I made the decision by prayer and fasting to commit to pursuing full-time ministry, and have had the opportunity to receive eight years of formal theological training to be prepared to be a pastor, and I have been to this year in full-time pastoral ministry for 21 years. What a, well, well, thank you, that's, appreciate the golf clap there, was not fishing for that, but thank you. My point is this. Inevitably, over the 21 years of pastoral ministry, people will come up to me and want to kind of identify, like, hey, you're in ministry, I'm going to be in ministry too. Really, tell me about it. And the conversation typically goes something like this. Well, I really believe that God is calling me to, and then fill in the blank. Or to say, I really feel like God wants me to, and then fill in the blank. And because they believe I'm in ministry and therefore I think ministry is good because I'm doing it and because of the fact that I'm doing it, I can identify with them. They kind of assume right away, we're gonna like high five it, hug it out and like pat them on the back and send them out the door. Because after all, what they're saying they want to do seems so good to do. After all, I'm doing it and if I'm doing it and I'm kind of a gutter kid, then why can't they go do it? The problem is so calmly today in the church at large, particularly in Miami, but especially back even then, A lot of people think just because they believe it's so, it is so. And I mean to try to say something that might be a little bit provocative, but I think should be applied in a lot of areas of decision making. Just because you say it's so doesn't make it so. Just because you believe God has called you to fill in the blank doesn't mean God has actually called you to fill in the blank. No matter what shiver in your liver that you feel like you had, coming from God. What you see here from Paul is that Paul who is clear, clear in his apostleship as being from God. His message clearly from God. And yet, what does Paul himself do? We'll go back to verse 1 and 2. I went up to Jerusalem, taking Barnabas and Titus with me, and I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Why? In order to make sure. I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, is Paul contradicting himself? I thought Paul's like working hard to claim independence, to sort of show like this is not from him, this is from God. But then why does he say what he says in verses 1 and 2? Because he recognizes the point here, friends. Ministry calling should be confirmed by those who are already in the ministry objectively, biblically. And what's also interesting is notice what Paul does not present as a point of affirmation. Because this is very, very important, and I want us to not miss this. I say this because sometimes I get the opportunity to help prospective church planters assess if they've been called to ministry. Other people, you might be wondering this yourself. Paul's argument in verses 1 and 2 is not his autobiography, Paul's defense is his theology. Now, his autobiography should be a point of illustration of integrity, which you go back if you can to verse 24, excuse me, verse 23 of chapter 1. It says, he who used to persecute us, meaning they're talking about Paul's testimony, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's that's his autobiography. That's his integrity. In verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. meaning It's like, look what God can do with a wild, rebellious sinner, but... What he presents in verse 2 is his theology, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. That's what he set before them. Friends, this is unbelievably important. I lament today that we'll take medical doctors appropriately and thankfully, train them for four years of medical school, put them in context of residency for another four years, perhaps extending that out further with maybe an internship for maybe another two years, having board examinations before we'll recognize them as a medical doctor to be board certified. We'll take lawyers who are gonna interpret in in just very complicated legal matters of law, put them through a very vigorous exercise of law school, have them be trained in seminary, excuse not in seminary, in law school, and then take their bar exams to confirm, can you pass the bar? And by the way, you can pass the law in Florida, but if you move to another state, you gonna take exam all over again for a different state. And yet how often the church has pastors who simply claim some type of divine revelation to make them a pastor, who have no training, who continue to now proliferate bad churches with weak gospel or no gospel at all. We're responsible for that as a church. We're responsible for the fact that we keep propagating untrained, poorly devised, poorly planned out things just because people claim to have some revelation from God. Paul doesn't even do that himself. This is significant for us. He says it so clearly here. Those who claim to be called to ministry should be confirmed by the church. I want to be a missionary. Praise God. I want to plant a church. Praise God. Those desires in themselves are not bad. Because the desire is not bad, it doesn't mean that the direction should be now and here. This is why we want to have churches that train up robust realities of people being strong in the word. It's interesting that Paul holds the Galatians responsible for their leaders. So it's not just leaders should be strong, the people of the word of God, people in the churches should be strong. They should know the gospel clearly. The second implication from gospel clarity is that not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Uh, let me tell you about Robert Hansen. Maybe some of you have heard that name. Some of you have never heard that name. Robert Hanson started working for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, a.k.a. FBI. In 1976, that was before some of you were ever thought in your parents' mind. 1976, three years later after he started working for the FBI, he went to and solicited at that time the Soviet Union to become a spy for them. And he became a spy for them in 1979. He continued being a spy for Russia, for the Soviet Union who then later became known as Russia for 22 years. Up until 2001. He sold thousands of classified documents to the KGB that detailed US strategies in the event of nuclear war, developments in military weapon technologies, aspects of US counterintelligence program. He also revealed a multi-million dollar eavesdropping tunnel built by the FBI under the Soviet embassy. His his espionage was described by the US Department of Justice as, quote, possibly the worst intelligence disaster in US history. He's in jail today. Pleaded guilty so that he wouldn't have to receive capital punishment, and he serves 15 consecutive life sentences without parole at a supermax maximum security prison in Florence, Colorado. I want you to imagine being Robert Hansen's coworker. You had lunch together for years. You talked about the weekend, you we talked about your kids. You talked about the projects, you helped each other and stuff that you're working on, they're working on. You're sharing information. And 22 years later you find out that the guy who you've been working with, who you feel like you know better than some of your family members, that he is a total scam. He's not a patriot, he's a traitor. This entire time he lied about who he was. Imagine, imagine how overwhelmingly disillusioned you'd be. How you could not like look at other people at work and like, who else? Who else is lying? Who else is saying they're with this, but they're actually traitors? Paul recognizes here in the text, verse 4, these false brothers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy. What are they spying? They're spying out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. The reality here, what's going on, is that there are people in the church in Jerusalem. Now, you've got to imagine people. <laughs> I mean, just, just consider that. I mean, I'm saying this as much to me as I'm saying to you. This is a church in Jerusalem that's led by, like, Peter. I mean, like, imagine going to worship service, right? I mean, like, you know, I introduce, like, hey... My name's Eric. On behalf of Ronald and Chris, I want to welcome you here. That's like, hey, I'm the Apostle Peter. On behalf of the Apostle James and John, we'd like to welcome you to our gathering. In their church, they had false Christians. And those people, like they 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 were with Jesus before Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. Well, like, how do do you know who is and who is not? Because of what they believe. Because of what they believe and what they're intending to do. You go back to the text there. Look at what it says there. Verse 3. It says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spite our freedom so that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. They believed that peace with God, forgiveness from God, was through some other means than just faith alone and Christ alone because of his grace alone and for his glory alone. And if anybody today teaches you otherwise, family, friends, Somebody who seem like they're wealthy, logically trained. Somebody who's perhaps recognized as a quote-unquote minister in some church. They teach anything else. Paul's already said in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1, let them be accursed. He says, even if I are an angel. Today I say, even if I, Ronald, Chris, anybody teaching something other than what the gospel is, let him be accursed. The third implication from gospel clarity is the spiritual immature should be protected the spiritually immature should be protected. We're seeing here in Galatians 2, this introduction of a man that we know in other parts of the Bible as well, named Titus. He's referenced first in verse one of chapter two, taking Titus along with me. And again in, in verse three, he talks about, uh, but even Titus, who is with me. Now, just you understand, Titus is comparatively speaking a new Christian. I say comparatively speaking because they're all kind of new Christians, but he's even newer. And Titus is not like Paul. Paul, as he says himself in Acts 26, he was raised as a Pharisee. Like Paul is trained in the Old Testament, what we call today the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets and the writings. He is trained in that. Titus didn't have any of that. Titus, as a new follower, is now sort of being discipled by, you could say, Barnabas and Paul. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, verse 4, he calls Titus my true child in the faith. Paul's like a father to Titus, and Titus like a son to Paul. He loves him. But he's making a pretty bold decision here. Paul is to take Titus with him to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is hostile territory. Jerusalem is going to be the epicenter of, of this Jewish belief. And coming into this context where there's still a temple happening, all these things going on, he knows what he's up against. And sure enough, Titus encounters other people who say, Titus, just a word. You can just imagine, Paul's over here in conversation with, with Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, he's talking to James, having some conversations, they're blown out, whatever's going on over there, Titus, just, just a word. Listen. I'm glad you and Paul have a good relationship. That's awesome. I could see he's having a good relationship with you. That's phenomenal. We commend that. You should have that. And we're glad for you to have that. I don't know if Paul's just too busy, or maybe Paul wants to just not offend you, and kind of shock you, but you just so they know, if you really want to be a follower of God, you need to be circumcised. And you need to be circumcised because Genesis 16 says that. All those who are followers of Abraham, all those who are in God as, children, as God as God's children, they should be circumcised. Titus, you're a Greek. You're not circumcised. If you want God to accept you, you should be circumcised. You can imagine how difficult of a conversation that would be for Titus to hear. Paul steps into this conversation. And he protects Titus. Look back at the text. Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. What's happening? Paul is protecting Titus from the false teaching that faith in Christ is not enough. He needs something else. Paul's not just protecting Timothy, excuse me, Titus, from some type of painful personal surgery as an adult man. He is protecting him from spiritual tragedy to believe something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he recognizes the need for that in his own life. To see that, the key here is that Paul wants to recognize that they should be protected. What are they being protected from? They're being protected from what Paul describes as slave traders. Like, what do you mean? We're, we're, why are we talking slave traders? We'll go back to the text. Look at what he says there in verse four. They've slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery bringing them back to being a slave to the law as opposed to being free in Christ. Free in Christ. Our freedom is in Christ. This is referencing the freedom from the law. It's a major theme in Galatians. Preserving freedom for Christians. The fourth implication for gospel clarity is that the church has been entrusted with gospel accuracy and clarity. The church has been entrusted with gospel accuracy and clarity. What I think is interesting is this whole conversation takes place in the context of Christian community. I mean, Paul himself is writing to churches of Galatia, chapter one, verse two. He's talking about interacting with other leaders of the church. Then he goes and presents his case to the influential, those who are leading the church, and you see this term continually being brought before them. Verse two, this term influential. Again, verse six, influential. Again, verse six, a second time influential. His emphasis there is this idea, he's even appealing to the leaders of the church of this. He mentions them by name later on in verse nine, James, Cephas, and John, who seem to be pillars. But even then, he talks about what it means to be in community together. The entire conversation is in the context of community. Now, listen. Today, words often are misunderstood and misapplied. For example, Uh, Unconditional love does not mean unconditional approval for your behavior. I'll say that again. Unconditional love does not mean unconditional approval of your behavior. That's not unconditional love. I say that because the use of the term freedom here, which we're picking back up in our text, does not mean free to do whatever you want regardless of what the Word of God says. In fact, to be free means to be free for a spirit-given freedom to want what God wants and to conform one's life to it. I mean, don't take my words for it. Listen to Cephas, a.k.a. Peter himself. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 16. What does it say there? Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. This includes committing to a local church and seeking to carry out the one another's in community with other Christians who share the same commitment to God's Word. When you think of committing to a local church, don't think of it as a church you join as if it's a group to be a part of, an organization to identify with. Think of it as a church that you submit to. that you come under, that you are a part of, that you are held accountable to. If you've ever traveled in some other country and you've lost your passport, what do you do? You go to your country's embassy and you say, help. Help, I, I don't want to stay here. I want to go home. but Without your help, I can't get home. That embassy represents your country where your citizenship is found and through a series of processes, documentation and establishing your identity and who you are is who you actually say you are, is actually who you really are, is affirmed and you are offered a passport so you can travel again. Do you understand churches don't determine who are Christians? The Word of God does that. God does that himself. No church is determining and declaring as a Christian. Churches are affirming or denying based on the clarity of the gospel and the life lived accordingly. Practically speaking, this is why any good gospel church is not simply saying, hey, can you walk physically or mobily down an aisle? Can you raise visually your hand to identify? I'm actually saying something more foundational, which is can you actually explain to me the gospel? I would love to hear your testimony. Why? Because churches have a responsibility like embassies do representing a nation. To be able to affirm or deny who are actually citizens. That authority has been entrusted to them by that nation to that embassy so as God has to his churches. The fifth implication Everyone needs to hear the gospel. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. You'll go back to the text there, and he says it in the significance of uncircumcised, verse 7. I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter has been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Basically, different ministries. The reality here is that God might raise up different people with different gifts and different capacities. God wants all people to hear the good news of His Son. And this is why we pray for works in other places, not just our own. Not just the ones we're supporting, but other places around the world. We pray for places in Afghanistan. We pray for churches in Ethiopia. We pray for churches in Cuba. We pray for churches in Honduras. We pray for churches in Brazil. We pray for churches in Sweden. We want to see those people hear the same truth that you are sitting here hearing today. Which is that man can have peace with God who's created them, who has authority over them, who has the right to judge them and will do so unless they hear the good news of of his son who came to live like none of them ever have. That in believing in him and his righteousness and in his crucifixion as a sacrifice, as a substitute, that all those who believe in him would be forgiven of their sins. And like, how do I know that he'll do that? Because he resurrected from the grave. He is as alive as I am speaking to you today, and you are sitting before me as well, that all those who put their faith in him and him alone will be forgiven of their sins. Peter understands, Paul understands, no matter what background you come from, everyone should hear that gospel. And friends, perhaps God brought you here today to hear that good news. The question is, what will you do with it? Will you keep fighting with God? Keep arguing with God? Keep trying to cover your eyes and plug your ears? Or will you see and recognize what He's showing you through His Word that there is good news in His Son? You delight in that. To know that you can have peace with God. While there might be a diversity in ministry in churches, there should be a unity in the message that they all preach. Sixth and final implication here. For gospel clarity the gospel comes with help the gospel comes with help you see this in verse 10 it's kinda like it looks like a subject change like what is this like PS added to this comment from Peter only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do that's what Paul is saying here the poor is in reference to the church in Jerusalem unlike a lot of other Gentile churches in other parts of the world who had affluent people living in those churches that could support the needs of their churches, the Jerusalem Christians did not. In fact, there were even times where they were going through a famine. And Peter's basically saying, I say Peter specifically, because he's often a spokesman. Paul simply refers to they asked me, referring to the, the pillars, the apostles. They're basically telling Paul, don't forget about the needs of others. And for as long as Paul had his ministry, he did not. You can see this in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 9, they collected from the Macedonian Christians and they sent back money to the Christians who couldn't otherwise provide for themselves. Do you realize Grace Church is a plant from people who obeyed verse 10? Let me just help break that down for you to understand that. Church plants, being so new and young, do not have the capacity to provide for themselves. I mean, we're renting from a small church just down the street, one service a month, $3,500 that cost us. Just one service a week, $3,500. You, you want to have actually pastors available to you? Well, how are you going to have them available if you don't provide for them financially? You want to have resources available for your discussion materials. You want to have counseling available. You want to you actually have having like lights and we, it turns out in Miami we like our air conditioning. You actually want to be comfortable in a room and on and on it goes and you want to help advance other work and help supplant churches. They're planting churches. They're going to plant more churches. You want to raise up residents. All these things happen. Where does that come from? Churches who recognize their opportunity to partner with other churches. Church, Grace Church is a plant from a lot of people you've never met. From a lot of churches you've never been to, from other cities you've never visited, because they wanted to see the gospel advance yet even more here in Miami. So they helped fund Grace Church. So as the day comes, we can begin to help support ourselves, and that's not even yet the case. There's not enough giving going on here to help support the church yet on its own. But so that one day we might do what we're already starting to do because we live radically, we believe, help plant faith church. But whether it be the needs of the individual, doesn't have the means himself, who are struggling financially, personally, the poor, or the church collectively, the gospel shows itself as what it prioritizes, what it invests in. People in need of churches who help others in need themselves, financially, personally. Helping the poor is not the gospel, but it is one way in which the power of the gospel is seen by illustration. Friends, I'm reminded of what Matthew says, Jesus says it himself in Matthew chapter six, verses 19 to 21. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I ask you this morning, friends, what do you treasure? What do you love that's seen by what you believe and how you live? What you really invest in? Investing in Christ is a company that will never go bankrupt. A life spent living for the Lord and serving him is a life well spent.